0: Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I'll confess, it's been a long winter, and this nice weather today has me wishing for spring. Hopefully back home, I did see on the forecast that it was warming up back there too. The last couple of days it's been getting down into the teens overnight back home, and so I hope it's got it out of its system now. They say... What do they say about March? It comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. Sometimes that's true in Pennsylvania. I think last year we had our last snowstorm in early April, and uh, so we had a little bit of a remnant of March. But we're so glad that we could be here with you, and I trust that it has been a blessing to your church family and uh, trust that the Lord will allow the Word of God, which has been preached, to bear fruit in each of your lives in the days ahead. Tonight, I want to look here in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a special passage to me. Um, When I was 16 years old, I was in Monterey, Mexico on a teen missions trip and reflecting on all that God was doing uh, with our group of teens that was there and some of the things that were going on, reflecting on some of the things that we had seen. And uh, I was looking here at Isaiah chapter 6 and God used this passage to call me into the ministry at that time and to make his calling sure uh, I had wrestled a little bit with that call up to that point being uh the son of a preacher what I had really wrestled with was I didn't want to go into the ministry just because that's what I had known and that's what my dad had done and you know a lot of people said well you should just go in the ministry but I didn't want to go into the ministry because, well, that's the way it always was or that's what dad did. I wanted to go because God had called me into the work of the ministry. And when I was 16, God used Isaiah chapter 6 to confirm the call of God upon my life. And I am very thankful for that call. I counted a great privilege to be in the work of the ministry. I, uh, there's lots of other things that I enjoy doing, but there's nothing like the ministry that God has called me to, and I'm so thankful that he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, and I trust that I will continue to be faithful to him and continue in that work that God has called me to. The book of Isaiah is an interesting book, and, um, you know, in some ways, I preached I preach through the book of Isaiah, or at least some highlights several years ago, and then shortly after that, I preached through the book of Jeremiah, and to be honest with you, both Isaiah and Jeremiah are kind of heavy books, And if you preach through them in an expositional way, by the time you get through, you feel a little weighted down. And one of the reasons is because there are so many similarities to what the nation of Israel was in the time of Isaiah, and he was a little bit earlier, and in the time of Jeremiah. There's so many similarities to what we face and what we encounter in our culture today. And you know I I think that in every generation it's important for men who God is putting his hand upon to know that they are called into the work of the ministry. But particularly in difficult seasons it is important to know that you are called into the ministry because there are times when you will look at what's going on and think I could be doing a lot of other things besides this. I could be I could be spending my time a lot more uh, a lot more beneficially than what I'm doing right now and sometimes it's tempting to say well I just I'll just step aside from the ministry and it's at times like that that I in my life go back to the call of God upon me and I know that God has called me into the ministry you know even if I got into a place where I could no longer be in the ministry full time as at, in, in order to pay the bills I know that I would continue on in the work of the ministry because that's what God has called me to do. Isaiah chapter 6 highlights the call of Isaiah the prophet. It's important to understand the book of Isaiah is not necessarily written in a chronological order, and that has confused some people because they say, you know, here we are in Isaiah chapter 6, and there's some things that went before this in the book of Isaiah, and now God is calling him to the ministry. No, God really called him before he ever started in the ministry, but the, I don't have time to explain why, but chapter 6, the call fits right here in this section. God put it in there for a reason, and and we see that Isaiah was a a, a unique prophet of God. If, if you know much about him, you know that he had a long ministry, and you know that according to Jewish tradition, his ministry ended in martyrdom. It's said about him that uh, eventually the people of Israel got so tired of his preaching that they took his body and they put it inside a hollow log and they sawed him right in half with the log and they killed him uh, because they couldn't stand the preaching that he was presenting against them. Of course, later the Pharisees would, would uh, garnish the sepulcher of the prophets and Jesus would come along and say to them, you would do the same thing to the prophets that your fathers did if you were alive during their day. And the Pharisees didn't like that too much. But Isaiah was a remarkable man. He was a humble man. And Isaiah was very much aware that his task, the job that God had given to him, was not to call attention to himself, but to call attention to Jehovah God and to the message that Jehovah had given him for the nation of Judah. So as we see Isaiah In his ministry, he had a divine communication. The the messages that he would preach would be directly from God to the people of Judah. He would speak not his own thoughts and his own whims, but he would speak the very words of God, the, the words that God had commanded him to speak. And as such, it was important for Isaiah to know that God had called him to that task. In like manner, it is important for us to know that God has called us to a very important task. And tonight, I'm not primarily talking about a a call of a man in the ministry so much as I'm going to speak about the call that is incumbent upon each and every one of us to speak the words of God to a dying generation, to a generation of people that are one breath away from eternity, that desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's several thoughts here that we'll look at in Isaiah chapter 6 pertaining to this prophet Isaiah, and we're going to apply them to our life. But before we get into that, I want to read the entire text, the entire chapter. It's not very long, just 13 verses. And so we'll read that together, and then we'll come back and dig into this chapter. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go, and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, "'Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Let me turn on this microphone before I go any farther, and that way the sound guys won't have to start waving at me. (laughs) Isaiah, first of all, had a confrontation with the glory of God. I want to say to you tonight how important it is that you and I would come face to face with the glorious God of the Bible it says here in verse 1 that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Evidently, the death of King Uzziah was a traumatic event. It was a moment in Isaiah's life by which he marked the progress of his years. Some of you might have events like this in your life. Uh, For me, and some of you maybe can identify with this, I remember very vividly, the attacks on our country on September the 11th. I I remember exactly where I was when I heard about that. I remember exactly what I was doing, and I remember how that consumed our attention. I'm then reminded that some of the younger folks don't remember that at all, weren't even around. And a lot of our teenagers, for instance, when we talk about the the, uh, Twin Towers... They've heard about it and they've seen footage on television, but to them, you know, it's not the same. To me, it was, it was an event which really marked my life. I, I remember very vividly that time. Maybe for some folks, it's the, it's the death of a loved one or some other event that, that really is seared into their mind. For Isaiah, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. You might remember that King Uzziah was a good and godly king of the nation of Judah. And God blessed him. God used him in a great way. But sadly, Uzziah became very proud and lifted up until he finally came to the place where he tried to go into the temple and assume the role of the priest. They tried to stop him, but Uzziah wouldn't listen. And because of that, God judged him. And eventually, Uzziah died because of his insolence, because of his pride. Now, it seems that Isaiah was a part of the royal family and evidently knew King Uzziah well. And for whatever reason, the death of King Uzziah, perhaps it was the circumstances that surrounded it. Uh, Perhaps it was uh, his sickness and his eventual death. Perhaps it was the shock of the nation of Israel losing a good and godly king and what transpired after his death. But we know this, that for Isaiah... This was a watershed moment. This was a moment in which we find Isaiah looking for the, for the ministry that he needs. And, and, and I want you to understand this, that oftentimes, and, and, and those kind of traumatic events are not something that we seek out. They're not things that we look for, but I think all of us could identify seasons in our life that we might label as emotional trauma or as really difficult trials And isn't it true that it is in those moments of time that God often intersects with our lives and he tries to arrest our attention and he tries to get our focus on his magnificent person. And here it is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is obviously moved by these circumstances. He's upset by these things. But God is going to draw His attention off the circumstances and onto the person of God Himself. You know, the truth of the matter is that for many people today, yes, even for most professing Christians, our idea of God is so small and so puny and so far from what the Bible says that God is like, today men speak about God in very trite terms. They have a very small idea of what God is like. And here's what God knew and Isaiah needed to know was that for Isaiah to endure during the seasons of difficulty that were ahead in the next 40 or so years of ministry, Isaiah was going to need to know without question who Jehovah is. He was going to have to have a clear understanding of the great might and power of the God who had called him. You know, for many people, their idea of God is so inaccurate, so unbiblical, so mundane, so powerless that most people think of God as being completely helpless, as if they have to do things for God or they have to fix the circumstances because God can't figure it out. The truth of the matter is, often our idea of God is much, much smaller than how God really is. Isaiah evidently needed to know something about the character of God. And so he was confronted with a vision of the glory of God. We note that vision, and uh, there's several things about what he saw that we want to point out to you. We see, first of all, that Isaiah saw the authority of Jehovah. The Bible says that as he had this vision, he saw these seraphim. And these seraphim were busy worshiping the Lord. And in their worship, they cried out in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now that's a very interesting title. He is called in verse 1, the Lord of hosts sitting upon a throne. And that that title, of course, you see there in your Bible, is in all caps, that is the name Jehovah, which refers to the self-existence of God. But see, the very first thing that came to Isaiah's attention was that the Lord, Jehovah God, was sitting upon a throne. That is a throne of authority. That is a throne where he is ruling, that title, Lord, refers to not only his self-existence, but also to the fact that he is the master. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. And as Isaiah saw him sitting upon that throne, his throne was a magnificent throne. His throne was a throne of splendor. His throne was a throne of unquestionable authority. I hear people talk at times today about our God as if they think one day when they die they're going to stroll into the presence of God and they're going to argue with Him and they're going to, to present their case and they're going to tell God all the reasons why they should be acceptable before Him and I'm telling you tonight, nothing like that is going to happen. When, when men come into the presence, into the very real presence of God They will be powerless to do anything except to fall on their faces before his incredible majesty and authority. The God who sits upon the throne is a God of authority. He is described in verse 1 as high and lifted up. That idea that he is high and lifted up means that his proper place is ascendant. It is exalted over all of his creation. This means to you and I that our God, Jehovah, is not like us. He is above us. He is altogether different from us. Now, I realize the Bible says we are made in the image of God, but that does not mean that God is somehow like us. He is far, far above us. He is high and lifted up, and really, tonight, He ought to he ought to hold such an esteemed place in our minds at all times. We ought to have in our mind a vision of a God who wields incredible authority. Now Isaiah saw his authority, but Isaiah also saw his glory. And there at the end of verse number 1, the Bible tells us that his train filled the temple. And that train refers evidently to the glorious Him of his garment. It's like the train that a bride might have on her dress. Whenever we've got a couple weddings planned at our church this year, and whenever we're preparing for the wedding and getting ready for rehearsal day and all of that, I always ask the bride, now do you have a long train? And the reason I ask that is because if there's a long train, then there's all kinds of things that you have to make sure of, and make sure that there's no problems with that. And usually, the bride will say, yes. And by that she means it's a really big, long train. Now, why do girls like to have a long train on their dress? Well, I guess because it it lends to the glory of that day. It it draws some attention. It's It's a different garment. I don't think most women are walking around with long, flowing him on their garment as they go to the shopping mall. But you know, on their wedding day, they they want to look a little different. They, They want to be set apart from the crowd. You know, here's the idea that God, and that's a very minuscule example, but God in his glory, his train filled the temple. His glory filled all of that place. Now, you understand the temple that Isaiah is talking about is Solomon's temple. This is a large and magnificent building and uh, in Isaiah's vision, the glory of God is spilling all over the temple. And uh, and as he's looking at that, you couldn't help but notice the presence of the Lord because the glory of God was filling every corner of the temple in every place. We know that even all the earth is filled with the glory of God. The idea is that the, the earth itself, as large as it is, cannot even come close to holding or containing the immense glory of God. He is a glorious God, and we ought to think of Him in glorious terms. We ought to worship Him for His glory. Now, along with this, we see the attendants that stood around, really flew around the throne that the Lord was sitting on. And in verse 2, these attendants, these angelic beings are called seraphim's. Best I can tell in my studies in the scripture, around the immediate vicinity of the throne of God, there are two types of heavenly creatures. There are cherubim, and cherubim are often pictured as having a sword, and in that sense seem to be defending the glory and the honor of God, and they are posted around the throne of God. The seraphim, however, are slightly different. They seem to be given this specific ministry of worshiping the holiness and the glory of God. It seems from when we see them in scripture that all the seraphim do is to fly around the the throne of God and to cry out concerning his holiness. That is their full-time eternal job is to worship Jehovah who sits upon the throne. And so these seraphim... And I don't think that you and I can even begin to understand how majestic these creatures are. For instance, if we were to encounter a seraphim in all of his angelic glory in the middle of the night, tonight as we're leaving the service, we would be absolutely stunned. But next to the glory of God, their glory is nothing. You see, these incredible creatures are given the task of of worshiping God. But the Bible tells us that in verse 2, they are not even worthy to look upon the one who sits on the throne. With their wings, two of their wings, they cover their face. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. And with two of their wings, they fly. And they cry out about the holiness of God. Consider that magnificent scene I doubt if our imaginations can really even paint the picture for us very clearly. Then we see that as they are crying out about the Lord in verse 3, the the focus, the the primary attribute that they are bringing to Isaiah's attention is found there in verse 4. They cry out saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when they cry out that he is holy, 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 we are reminded that we serve the thrice holy God. I believe that God wishes to be remembered and recognized and reverenced for his holiness. We could say tonight that the holiness of God is one of his primary attributes. God will never diminish his holiness, for instance, in pursuit of his love. Uh, There will be no diminishing of God's holiness in order to provide mercy for sinful man. And so God's holiness is a preeminent and primary uh, attribute of God. And it was very important that Isaiah would understand that God is a holy God. Now, I said a little bit ago that I believe that in our generation and in our culture, even among many professing Christians and really in Christendom at large, this escapes us, this truth about the incredible holiness of God. There is such a flippant attitude at, in general, at large, among people who profess to be the children of God. There is such a casualness with which they address God, and I... Listen, I understand and I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us access to the throne of God because of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful that Jesus said that he is our friend and he calls us friends. I am so thankful that he calls us his brother. I'm so thankful that we're fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. But I also want us to understand that God is such an incredibly holy God that we have no access to His person apart from Christ. There is absolutely no way that we could come into His presence were it not for Christ Himself. And that leads us to the next thought. As Isaiah is confronted with this overwhelming vision of the greatness and the grandness of God, it says in verse 4, that the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And the idea here is that God is an inaccessible God. He is so holy as to be out of reach of man. When the Bible say, says that the posts of the door move if you had time to go back and study about the posts of the door and how those were constructed, you would understand that this is a significant trembling. This is a a trembling. If tonight we were to have an earthquake in the middle of this service and the whole building was to start to shake, I tell you, it would get our attention. It would cause us to say, what's going on? Uh, I was in a a pretty major earthquake down in Chile, South America, back in, I think it was 2010 when I was down there. And and it was the middle of the night. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. But I'll tell you, we woke up. Things started falling off the wall. Bookcases started falling over. The whole house was shaking. And we said, we got to get out of here. This is crazy. We're not staying in this house. You see, when God was there, and here the seraphim are crying out, The voice of the seraphim makes the posts of the door move and shake. Now, if the voice of the seraphim is so powerful and so fear-inducing as to shake the posts of the door, can I ask you what you think the voice of the one who sits upon the throne is like? We're told in other places in the Bible that his voice is like the sound of many waters. Did you ever sit by the ocean And listen to the waves crashing and roaring. Perhaps if there's a a little bit of rough surf and and listen to that sound. That's how the Bible describes the the voice of our God. I mean, that'll get your attention. That'll cause you to, to sit up and listen. Not only did the post of the door move at the voice of the seraphim, but the Bible says the house was filled with smoke. And that smoke signifies the glory of God. And it really points out the mystery that surrounds his person. For everything that we know about God, that God has revealed, incidentally, there's nothing we could know about God unless God revealed it to us. But for everything that we do know about God, which he has revealed to us, I suggest that there are infinitely more things that we cannot even fathom. There is a some mystery that surrounds the... the the person of God and what he is like. God has told us everything that we need to know, but I suggest that there are many things that we could not possibly know, that we uh, perhaps will never know about the character of God. The smoke surrounded him, giving us the idea that we could not know God, we could not approach God except at his invitation and at his provision. Now, it's important That Isaiah saw this vision because Isaiah needed to know the God who was calling him to serve him. Uh, He needed to know the God that he was representing. And I suggest to you this, this, this evening that it is important for us as the people of God to know something about the holiness and the inaccessibility and the incredible righteousness, the justice, the mercy... The the majesty and the glory of the one that we represent. When we go with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to this world, we are not representing a feeble, powerless God. We are representing the omnipotent God who still sits upon that throne. And so there was a confrontation that took place and Isaiah saw the glory of God. Now, second of all, we see in verses 5 through 7 that because of what he saw, there was a cleansing that took place which God provided. And Isaiah's response is exactly what the response would be if you and I came face to face with the glorious person of God. Isaiah saw this in his vision, and in verse 5, he said, Woe is me for I am undone. His response was that he said, woe is me. Now that's a strong term. We don't use the word woe very often, and we certainly don't use it in the same sense that it was used at that time. But What he is saying is, I'm cursed. I I am undone. I, I, I... I've seen the Lord and I don't deserve to see Him. Woe is me. You know, when we understand the God that we have been called to serve and we begin to get a a little bit of a glimpse of His person, then our response will be, woe is me. You know, this is important because in a little while, Isaiah is going to be tasked with going out into the streets and the marketplaces of the nation of Judah And he is going to cry out woes upon the nation of Judah because of their sin. But before he could ever point out the sin of the nation of Judah, Isaiah had to come face to face with his own inadequacy. He had to come face to face with his own deep sinfulness. He needed to see his own woe. His response was, woe is me, for I am undone. That phrase, I am undone, speaks about the fact that Isaiah saw his own unworthiness. He saw that his sin would cause him to be destroyed before one so holy as this God. He knew that he did not deserve to stand in the presence of Jehovah God. And he said, I am undone because of God's great holiness and God's greatness. I'm unworthy to stand in his presence. Now, I want you to understand that Isaiah is not an insignificant man. Isaiah is already by this point a man with some influence. He is a man with some character. But his response when he understood who God is, is to say, I'm undone. I think that much of the arrogance that we see in Christianity today would be completely put aside if we would just for a few moments stand in the presence of our God. And realize what a holy God he is. Now Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. And then he said this, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that Isaiah was some kind of a vulgar or profane man before this point. Actually, the record of scripture seems to indicate that even by this point, Isaiah was a man who loved God. He was a man who wanted to worship God. He was a man who wanted to serve God. He was a man who was careful in his character and in his decisions. But what we find is that in comparison to God's immense holiness, Isaiah became aware of the triteness and the uncleanness of his own conversation. And all he could say is, in comparison to God, I am a man of unclean lips. I am an unworthy man. You see, Isaiah made it clear that his recognition of his own unworthiness came when he saw God in his great worthiness. When he saw God in his character, now Isaiah says, I'm an unworthy person. Before you can ever be used in the service of the Lord, there must come what I could refer to as a breaking. There must come a place where you realize your own utter unworthiness before God. Listen, we don't come to God and say, here are all my talents, Lord, and I'm sure you can put them to good use. We come to God and say, I'm completely unworthy to be used by you. I have nothing to offer you. I I have nothing that I could give in your service except, Lord, I'll just give you what I am and hope that you can use it. You see, he understood something of his unworthiness. He he understood something of his uncleanness. He understood not only his own uncleanness, but he understood the uncleanness of the people to whom he was called to minister. He saw that the people that he was among were sinful people. But I want you to see that Isaiah did not exalt himself over those people. He understood his own sin, and he understood their sin. We better be careful in preaching the gospel. I have seen people use, for instance, the law to try to reason with somebody and bring them to the end of themselves. And yet, in their use of the law, they were themselves arrogant and proud and mocking. ...of the person that they were speaking to. That is not the way that we ought to use the law. If we're going to use the law, we ought to use it in in a humble sense... ...knowing that the law has been applied to our own lives... ...and we have been found wanting. Uh, We have fallen short of the glory of God. and, And with compassion, we ought to apply the law of God to some other individual... ...helping them to understand how desperately they need Christ... I'm saying this, there is no place for pride or arrogance in the service of the Lord. And Isaiah is being brought to the end of himself. Now his response was one of humility. His, his response was one, if you will, of repentance. His response was one of crying out, woe is me. And then we find that God made a provision. In verse number 6, one of those seraphim flew unto him. "...and had a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar there in the presence of God. And he laid that coal upon the mouth of Isaiah and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged." The coal that was taken off the altar would have been symbolic of the sacrificial provision of God. It would have been symbolic of the sacrifices that were offered on that altar and that God had recognized those sacrifices. It showed the forgiveness of man's sin through the offering. And we know today that those sacrifices that were offered in the temple of Solomon were symbolic of the coming sacrifice of the Lamb of God. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that we have cleansing from our sin. There is a great need for us to experience that forgiveness, to experience that cleansing through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coal that was placed on Isaiah's lips cleansed him and made him worthy now to answer the call of God and to serve God with sincerity and truth, which Isaiah did for the rest of his ministry. And so there was a cleansing which took place. That cleansing was necessary because Isaiah had been confronted with the holiness of God. But then the third part of the chapter, from verse 8 to verse 13, deals with the calling. So first he was confronted by the holiness of God, and then he was cleansed by God to prepare him, and now Isaiah is ready to hear the calling. And and you see there in verse 8 that he heard the voice of the Lord immediately after he was cleansed, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. By the way, I was doing some study a while back and I stumbled onto to something that a, a liberal wrote. And he said, you know, when God says that, who will go for us? He wasn't talking, this isn't some kind of a reference to the Trinity. This is talking about, you know, the seraphim and, and the Lord on the throne what what in the world that guy was misguided by the way you know what i did with that book i picked it up for uh to use for a class i was teaching i got that far and i said this book is going to be no help to me this person doesn't even know what he's talking about who is god talking about when he says who will go for us he's talking about himself the triune god god the father god the son god the holy spirit who is going to go for us You see, Isaiah heard the voice of God. I want you to know that this evening, I keep saying morning, afternoon, evening, I'll get it eventually. It is God who calls to his service. It is God who calls us to serve him. God is still calling today for those who will go for him. The voice of God is still calling out who will go for us. And whom shall I send? Now, understand this. God does not send men like Isaiah because God is incapable of doing it himself. This is the remarkable thing. Think about this with me for just a moment. What is God asking? Who will go for us? Why does somebody need to go for for God? God is perfectly capable of going himself. God is capable of doing anything that he wants to do. So when God asks who will go for us and whom shall I send, this is not for God's benefit. This is for Isaiah's benefit. This is God saying, I could do this myself, but Isaiah, I'm looking for someone to send. I'm looking for someone to involve in this great work. This is like if I were to have Caleb work with me on the car. My boys love to work on the car with me. And uh, we have an older car, so there's always lots to do on it. And uh, Caleb says, can I, can I come work with you? Can, can I help you, Papa? Can I help you change the oil? Can I help you do that thing? And I, I might say to him, sure, Caleb, come help me. I don't say to Caleb, sure, come help me because I'm not sure what to do, and I really need him to come give me some advice about how to work on my car. He's four years old. Mostly what he's going to do is mess things up. Mostly what he's going to do is get in the way, and I say that with all, all the... And, and I do love him, and I care about him, but you know what? That's the truth of the matter. He's not going to come and, and really help me. He, he's going to be there... And, and he's going to get some benefit from helping me. Now, one day when he gets a little older and, and wiser and stronger, then I'll be able to say to him, go, go change the oil, son, and he'll know how to do it. But see, here, here's what I want you to understand. It's not God who gets the benefit from us serving him, and I think that's how some people feel. Okay, God, you got me. All right, I'll say yes. I mean, you're, you're getting a real good deal here. You're getting me. Listen. God didn't get a good deal when he got me. I'm the one who got the good deal. I'm the one who is supremely blessed by God. Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord and God was inviting him saying, who am I going to send? Who will go for us? And then we find at the end of verse 8 that Isaiah says, um, um, I'm over here. How about me? Now, I, I have a, an imagination. I like to imagine things and, and I think about Isaiah and God is up on that throne and the seraphim are going around and around that throne and God's glory is filling the, the temple like a, like a majestic train and there's smoke everywhere because of the glory of God and, and the voice of God thunders forth who will go for us and whom shall I send and Isaiah says um, how about me I'll go I don't don't know that he said, oh, I'll go, I'll go. I think maybe it was just kind of, okay, I'll go. If you could use me, if I could go, I'll go, Lord. That's kind of how I felt when God called me into the ministry. Okay, Lord, I'll go. I don't know if I can do it. I I don't know if I'm cut out for it. I I don't know. I'll need your help, Lord, but here am I. Send me. I think we need more people to say, here am I, send me. Now, I told you tonight, I'm not primarily talking to those who are called into full-time, what we might call vocational ministry, those who God will gift as pastor-teachers or as evangelists in the the house of God, the church of the living God. I'm, I'm really, in my mind, sensing that God also has a call which is incumbent upon every single one of us to be his representatives to this world, to, to proclaim the glorious gospel. And, you know, for us, we ought to say, okay, Lord, I'll go. You know, the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ representatives of the kingdom of heaven. To to be the ones who will go to men and say, I represent the God of heaven, and I'm here to tell you what he thinks and and what his demands are and and what the provision is that he's made. What an honor. What What a dignity it is which God has bestowed upon us to say, I want you to represent me to this world. I know that it's a scary thing. I know that there's times that we struggle with that calling and with the fear of what people will think. But brethren, I'm telling you that God has called us to be ambassadors for Christ. And we ought to count that a great privilege as we go about our daily lives. There is no greater honor that could be bestowed upon us than to be called to represent the God of heaven. The God who sits upon that throne. Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. But you know, I note something else. Because God responded to his willingness to go in verse 9. God said to him, go and tell this people. And then he details what he wants him to tell them. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And I, I want to make it clear. In verse 9 and 10, God is not telling Isaiah, I want you to speak in, in mysterious language so that the people can not understand what you're saying. I mean, you, you read the book of Isaiah. He spoke plain as could be. He, he described exactly what God was going to do. He told them what was going to happen if they continued to sin. You say then, why was it that they couldn't understand? Because they wouldn't understand. God knew that what the people were going to do when Isaiah preached to them was they were going to say, we don't want to hear it. We're going to put our fingers in our ears. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to ignore you, Isaiah. We're going to do our own thing. You know what happens when people refuse to hear the truth? They hear the truth, They know what God has said, and they say, I'm doing my own thing. I'm not listening to that. They harden their heart. And you know what happens after somebody hardens their heart? It becomes a little easier for them next time they hear the truth of God to harden their heart again. And the next time they hear the truth of God, it's a little easier to harden their heart again. And the next time they hear the truth of God it's a little easier to harden their heart again until to them they could hear the truth of God and it's completely meaningless. It's like water off of a duck's back. It it, it doesn't, doesn't do anything to them. They couldn't care less about what God says. And you know what that is? That's judgment from God. You see, God knew that when he called Isaiah and when Isaiah volunteered, that Isaiah was going to come and he was going to be given a job which was an impossible task. In fact, almost no one would listen to anything Isaiah said. For nearly 40 years, Isaiah would preach and declare the truth of God, and basically, he was ignored. Now, I don't know about you, But if I knew I was volunteering for that kind of a ministry, I might have second thoughts. I might say, Lord, really? Nobody? Very few? Just a small number? You see, I think many of us are willing to volunteer if we could be wildly successful. If in the process of doing God's work, we could say, look at all the people that I've reached. Look how successful I've been. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'd like to be able to say, look at the big church that I built. Look at all the people that are coming. That's what, in, my, in my flesh, that's what I like. But you know what? Isaiah's ministry was a ministry of destruction. It was a ministry of hardening hearts. Could we serve the Lord faithfully if we knew that our primary function was that God was going to use us to declare the truth to people who would not hear so that they would drink full the cup of God's wrath. So that they would stand without excuse before God one day knowing that they deserve everything that they're going to get because we were faithful to preach the truth. Now, I'm not saying that with any joy because that's not really the kind of ministry that I envision myself having. That's not something that I really want to do. But God told Isaiah, that's exactly what you're going to do, Isaiah. You're going to preach and people aren't going to listen. Now, I say this because there are some similarities between our day and our culture and what Isaiah was dealing with. I, I know an awful lot of Christians who used to share the gospel, who used to knock on doors, who used to go on visitation, who used to be involved in evangelism, and and their reason for not doing so anymore is this. Well, nobody listens anymore. You know, God didn't tell us to go if people will listen. He said to go. Whether they listen or not, whether they believe it or not, we are... Tasked with going and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go and tell. Now, you could probably identify with Isaiah's answer. Because in verse 11, he asked this question Lord, how long? How long do you want me to do this? Can I request a, a modification of my assignment, Lord? Can I get temporary orders to someplace more exciting? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. If I got to pick where I was going to minister, I would figure out where in the world people are the most responsive to the gospel and they're just eating up the truth of God. And I would say, okay, I'm going there because that's exciting. That's fun. That, that, I'd say that's where I could really invest my life. I don't know that I would sign up for a job like Noah had, preaching 120 years to people who didn't want to hear so that when the door of the ark closed, not a one of them could have an excuse. I don't like that. Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And perhaps there was some hesitation in Isaiah's mind. Maybe he's asking himself, I don't know how long I can do this. Uh, This is kind of a difficult task. I don't know if I'm up to this task. I want you to know that preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in this generation and in this culture is not an easy task. Uh, I believe that we are up against something formidable. And in many cases, what we are doing is preaching to people who never will hear, to people who do not want to know the truth. I believe we are living in the last days. I believe that men are heaping to themselves teachers having itching ears. I believe that people are looking for some kind of an enjoyable experience and not so much to worship God. I believe that all those things are true, but that does not diminish our calling to preach. So Isaiah asked, Lord, how long? God answered in verse 11, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. How long was Isaiah going to preach until there was nobody left to preach to? Do you know when we can say our job is done? Well, when we get to heaven or when there's nobody left to preach to. That's when we can say that our job is done. There's a job that is set before it. But you know, there's a promise that God gave in the midst of this. And and in Isaiah's ministry and in his mind, it was going to seem literally like nobody cares. Nobody is going to respond. But the Lord gave him just a little bit of a promise. And he said, but Isaiah, I want you to know, verse 13 Yet in it shall be a tenth. A tenth is 10%, right? It's a, it's a remnant. And, and he said, that remnant, it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. The picture is of an oak tree or a teal tree. And best I can figure that could be like an elm tree. It's a strong tree. And the time comes at the end of the season when all the leaves fall off. It's also at that time that the seed is cast away from the tree. You know how that works. Then the squirrels go around and they get those nuts and they bury them. And, And when you look at those trees during the winter, they look dead. There's no leaves on them. You're looking at them, you're thinking, is there any life in them? But, of course, they do have life in them. And then those seeds that went out from them are going to sprout up some seedlings. And pretty soon, there's going to be some other trees. And that's the picture that God is painting. He's saying, you know, it's going to look like the nation of Israel is going down, like they're like they're never coming back, like they're going to be completely destroyed. But there is a remnant. And, and of course, we know God was going to eventually, after 70 years of captivity and judgment upon the nation of Judah, God is going to bring a remnant back to the land, and the under Zerubbabel and and then Nehemiah is going to come and rebuild the walls and the temple is going to is going to be uh, rebuilt and and all these Ezra the scribe is going to be involved in this and and uh, there 's going to be a remnant that comes back to the land, and God is going to continue working in the nation of israel and of course, we know that one day God is going to return the nation of Israel to favor, one day yet future for us and so there 's a promise that God gives to isaiah and and basically what he 's saying to isaiah is it 's going to seem. Like what you are doing has no value, has no purpose, and nobody's listening. But take heart, Isaiah, because guess what? Your ministry is not insignificant. In fact, can I point this out to you tonight? We are talking about Isaiah's ministry in 2019. Thousands of years after he faithfully served God and evidently wondered if anybody cared... We care. And we are being impacted by his testimony and by his ministry. To put it this way, Isaiah is having an effect on us right now. Praise God for that. So, you know, when you think that it's worthless, that it's meaningless, that nobody's listening, that nobody cares, that nobody's ever going to get right with God, take heart because God always has a remnant. God is working in the world around us. There are still some people that God is drawing to salvation and certainly there are some others who are going to turn away from the truth and maybe the majority are going to turn away from the truth. It's hard to read the the teaching of Jesus Christ and come away and say that the majority of people are going to be saved. I mean, Jesus said that the gate is straight, The way is narrow, and few there be that find it. The way to destruction, however, is broad, and and that way is very broad, and many there be which go in thereat. So the majority of people are not walking in the truth, but let that not discourage us, because God has told us that it would be thus. Let us instead keep looking for the remnant. Let's keep looking for those uh, that will be responsive to the truth of God. And let's believe that if we do what God tells us to do, that in and of itself is all that God requires. And I believe eternity itself will reveal the impact when we have been faithful to God. I, I, again, my imagination kicks in. I wonder if one day... Isaiah, the prophet, will stand before the throne of God in heaven to receive some rewards. And all of us who have been impacted by the long, effective ministry of Isaiah will be called forward. I wonder if I'll be in that group. Because, you know, Isaiah's calling and and the, the preservation of that and the word of God affected me. And, and, and caused me to realize that God was calling me into the ministry. And I wonder if Isaiah will look out at this crowd of people and weep tears of joy when he realizes the impact that his ministry really had. You know, during his life, he probably wondered if it's really worth it. He probably wondered, is, is this really going to matter? And God told him, yes, Isaiah, it is going to matter. Now, I say that because many of us struggle with those same concerns, those same fears, those same thoughts. What's it going to matter? Nobody listens. Nobody is getting right with God. Nobody is really responding. But we can't judge the success of our ministry based upon what we see with such short vision. God calls us to continue to be faithful because God is at work in the world around us. Now, Isaiah is a great example for us, because Isaiah's calling was firmly rooted in the person of God, who changes not. His calling was the result of a cleansing, which could only be given by a holy God. And his calling then was carried out in faithfulness despite very difficult circumstances and it had the blessing of god upon it and i'm here to tell you tonight that we can have the same kind of ministry in our lives if we will make sure that we have the right understanding of god and we understand that what we are doing uh, as we go with the gospel it's not for our purposes it's for his purposes it's not for our glory it's for his glory It's not for our satisfaction, it's for His satisfaction. And if we can get in our mind that what we are doing is not for us, it's for Him. And we say, I don't understand, I don't see the results, I don't know how this is all going to turn out. Well, understand this, the God who has called you to do it sees the end as well as He sees the beginning. And there is a reason why He has called us to proclaim the truth. May it be said of us in this generation, that we have likewise said to the thrice holy God, here am I. If you'll use me, please send me. Please allow me to be your ambassador. Please allow me to be your representative in this day and age. Because brethren, we live in a world that desperately needs to know the God that we worship. And we have an opportunity to make a difference in this world in which we live.